Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of uh, Wilsey Asset Management. And uh, as always, we're going to start off the show with some market information, uh, topics we talk about. And we'll be talking about this morning about the market increase, streaming services. There's some big changes coming on with them. And then also, too, we'll be talking about real estate, uh, what's going on with that. And I did notice that uh, this week the NASDAQ is now down 30.5% year to date. Yeah, and I'm Chase Wilsey, Vice President at Wilsey Asset Management. Got to correct you. We're not talking about the market increase. We're talking about the Fed interest rate increase. All we righty. know the market's not going up right now. <laughs> <laughs> but as always, for our live listeners, here to take your calls. Phone number if you want to call in is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. Again, you have questions about your portfolio, about maybe some, you know, financial issues you're having we'll take a look at you know particularly individual companies individual stocks looking at the valuation ratios the balance sheet and really taking that fundamental analysis of the the companies to see if it is a buy sell or or maybe it's a hold at this time yeah we'll start taking those calls about uh, 10 15 minutes but we do want to talk about the uh the markets here the fed continued to spook markets uh, this past week with the outlook for monetary policy the 0.75% rate hike to a range of 3% to 3.25%. Well, that came as no surprise, but the concern came when the outlook for the rate hikes going forward was released. Uh, the current estimate is a terminal rate of, uh, or terminal rate or an endpoint of 4.6% next year. Uh, six of the 19 dots were in favor of taking rates to 475 to 5% range next year but the central tendency was to 4.6%, which will put rates in the 4.5 to 4.75 area. The current expectation is that the Fed will raise rates by at least one and a quarter percent in its two remaining meetings this year, and then part, part, potentially another 0.25% next year. Yeah, I do want to just talk real briefly on the dot plot. What the heck's a dot plot? Yes, let's explain so that. So that is essentially what the 19 voting members at the Fed think rates will be. So that's kind of their personal analysis of where they think they'll be at that point. So when we talk about six dots, well, that means there was six Fed members that thought that's where rates will be. So just want to kind of clarify that for people. And I do want to kind of talk about what is happening here. I mean, I, I, I just believe at this rate the Fed has gone too far. Mm -hmm. They completely missed the mark last year and now are completely missing the mark on the other end. If you look at the meeting from last year on the dot plot uh, for the September meeting, you'll notice not a single member had the Fed fund rates topping 0.75% to 1%, and majority believe the rate would fall between 0% and 0.5%. As you said, we're at 3 to 3.25%, <laughs> and there's the thought that we'll go to about over 4% by the end of the year. That is a far cry 
from zero to zero point five percent, not even close. And then again, you, you look at where we're at currently and go into four point six percent next year. That is just drastically different. And you could actually look up these dot plots, and we posted mm-hmm. them on our social media. If you want to go to our Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn pages, you can actually see these dot plots we're talking about because you compare them side by side. Where we at last September to this September, it's not even close to where they are. I mean, it's a drastically different picture. And the thing that I got to point out here is I just, I wouldn't give much confidence in the current dot plot given how far off the Fed was last year. Right. I mean, they were so wrong and, oh, it's transitory. And there were transitory components, but clearly we knew and we talked about it and we weren't the only ones that were talking about this inflation's not transitory yeah and i'm trying to go back to when alan greenspan was uh taking care of this back in the the great recession and so forth and uh i don't remember having this uncertainty or this this uneasy feeling about what the fed was doing i i, I feel the fed has been wrong for about last year and two here we, we talked about it before and I'm hearing more people saying they don't trust the Fed. And I've never heard that before, but they seem to keep making these poor decisions where now we are starting to see some slowdowns. And as you talk about the dot plot, that it, it, it seems to be wrong once again what they're thinking. And and, and it's not just uh, Powell, but it's, it's the other members as well. What is going on here with them? Because I, I think this they're gonna go too far, push us too far into recession, when they went too long with the, the interest rates. And, and we've used this analogy before, but it's almost like the Fed. What they're doing is they're driving, looking in the rear view mirror. Yeah. They're not looking at the road ahead. They're looking at what is happening. And that's exactly what happened last year is inflation at the September meeting last year. It, it wasn't really a big deal, but we were saying, yeah, but it's going to be a big deal. Yeah. And now, sure enough, they were looking in the rear view mirror then and now, oh, inflation, we got to tame inflation, which, yes, to some degree to do. But, I mean, you've already increased interest rates substantially, like at a historical rate, essentially, right. this year, that I worry now you're going to have a huge policy mistake and go too far. Now, again, I'm not an economist by any means, right. but I, I can kind of make some good judgments here based off of where we're at. And we did have a huge explosion on the, the money supply. But I, I look at it and say, gosh, I mean— why don't we just take a breather? Right. We're almost at the end of the year. You have quantitative tightening going on in the background, which doesn't get as much publicity as the raising of the Fed fund rate. Maybe just hold off and see next year when we start to kind of lap and see if the supply chain starts to resolve itself. Because that's one thing that I don't get enough media, don't think it's enough media, is, is the resolution of the supply chain. If that gets resolved, you're not going to see the same type of inflation rate. So maybe we just take a breather. You are so late to start raising rates. Just pause for a second. Yeah. Maybe we have to raise rates again next year. But I worry now you're, you're going to have that hard landing that people fear. And, and people keep saying, oh, well, we're gonna, are we going to be in a recession? All right, so we're in a recession. Yeah. Well, And actually, we're in based on the two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. But we're not in a recession until... Is it the BLS until there's somebody in the government that actually declares it? Yeah. Technically, you're not in recession until they declare it, but unfortunately, they don't declare it until after it's almost <laughs> over. So <laughs> you really don't know. But uh, on, on the two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, we are in one based on that. But uh, the other thing too, it kind of puts that negative feeling for people where, well, I better not do this, and oh, a company better cut back. And, and we've talked before, you can beat inflation by increasing the supply. 
as opposed to decrease or, in, or decreasing the demand. But you know, the government doesn't seem to get that. Well, let's work hard. Let's be positive. Let's produce more products. Let's produce more corn, wheat, whatever it is, to increase supply to bring down prices. But they don't seem to want to do that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I just kind of look even at how this is impacting borrowing rates. I mean, you look at a 30-year fixed mortgage now. What, I mean, what, what rates? Borrowing. Oh, borrowing, yeah. Uh, you look at the 30-year fixed mortgage right now, you're, gosh, you're at like six and a quarter, six yeah. and a half. I mean, that is somewhat restrictive to buying a home, which that should work out. I, I don't know if they're trying to push up the 30-year fix to eight, nine. Per, <laughs> I don't know what their goal is here. I mean, that is going to be really restrictive in terms of people buying. And the other thing that I think about as well, these rising interest rates that they're doing, it also shoots them in the foot because of all the debt we have. That means you've got to pay more interest on that big debt that we have. So there is an incentive to keep those rates low for the debt that the government has to pay. But yeah, it, it, it's we're going to see how this plays out. But hopefully they'll they'll realize in October, November, like, yes, okay, we're, we're going to not inter- increase interest rates. And I will say, if all of a sudden that does happen, all this panic in the market that's oh, going yeah. on, it, it, it can reverse very quickly. If all of a sudden the Fed says, oh, no, inflation is actually cooling down, that that's that type of catalyst that the market can can pop. And, and call me crazy, it could pop 5 6 7 8% in a single day. Right. I mean, that has happened. Well, it has happened. And that's why market timing doesn't work because you don't know when that's going to happen. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen three months from now. Who knows? But there'll be some catalyst that could turn it around very quickly. And there you are sitting on the sidelines like, okay, well, now it's up. Well, now I'll wait for a pullback. And it doesn't pull back. That goes up more. Well, well now I'll wait for it to pull back more. Oh, it went up more. And then you end up buying high. Yeah. So that's why market timing does not work. Uh, and I know it. I, I know it's hard to, to hang on during difficult times. And we always talk about if you have the right companies, it's a lot easier. But it's still not easy. I've, I've you know, but doing this, I, I said this, my 17th correction I've gone through. I still don't like it. It's not like, oh, this is a great way to have a correction. <laughs> but you go through it. Let's move on and talk about the streaming services because streaming services are now in a big hurry to add advertisements to their content to help reduce costs for subscribers. In addition to providers like Netflix, Paramount, Disney, and Warner Brothers Discovery, they'll also be competing with Facebook and Google. Supply and demand being what it is, there's a possibility that the high availability ad space will decrease the prices for advertising, especially with the slowdown in the economy. Also, don't forget the traditional advertisements on TV and radio. And, and there's a term they use in advertising called cost per milli or CPM, and, and milli is Latin for 1,000. It measure, measures the price of 1,000 advertisement impressions. Currently, it's estimated that the CPMs will come in somewhere around $20 to $30 for these streamers. HBO Max currently is topping that range over $40. For Netflix, depending on the analyst, estimates range from $20 to $50 in the CPMs. If Netflix does not get the higher price, their stock could fall by another 40 to 50% from current levels. I know a lot of people are, are super bullish on I've, I've even seen people say, oh, they could maybe get $65 on their CPMs. I just, I, I don't see that happening personally. And, and that could be something that, again, really hurts the stock. It was also revealed that studios that have a lot of content, such as Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery, used to charge very low levels for content and have now been hoarding it for their own streaming platforms. This means other content providers like Netflix and Amazon will have to spend billions of dollars to create new content, which may or may not attract viewers. And and we talked this past week. I think you said you don't watch Netflix anymore. Honestly, I went on Netflix yesterday because I was like, ah... I don't really know what I want to watch, and I exited out. There's just nothing on there that 
I was really interested in. Yeah, they, and I, I, I'm, I'm trying to watch this this show with my lady because it's you know Virgin Rivers name of it, and it's like every single time I fall asleep. I like action, <laughs> like, but that's the only thing we're watching on on Netflix and uh, watching a great show on Warner Brothers Discovery, um, HBO Max, yeah. HBO Max. Um, so there are some good things out there, but it's just like. I think it's going to change, and we've talked about you know Apple trying to come in this and so forth. They've got to spend billions and billions of dollars to create content. What is kind of like a drug company? You can spend billions and billions of dollars of creating this drug, and it just doesn't work. Whereas same thing can happen. You spend billions of dollars on creating this content, and it was a flop. Actually, Warner Brothers did that where they spent what ninety was it ninety five million I think creating mm-hmm. Batgirl. And they said, no, this is not good. We're not going to do it. And that was only $95 million versus some of these big ones that I've heard Netflix and uh, others spend on. Yeah, I know. Uh, gosh, I think it's Amazon has the uh, kind of Lord of the Rings spinoff. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be the most expensive film show. I mean, right. they're spending a ton of money on it. And it's like, yeah, what if it's not good? Not good. <laughs> you know? And does the HBO Max have one that was kind of competing with that that did extremely well? Uh, what? yeah, House of the Dragon. House which of is, Dragons. Yeah, spinoff from Game of Thrones. So I mean, HBO Max does have some very good franchises in there, right. and I, I think Netflix has like Stranger Things. So like they're trying to build up their kind of license content right. or their type of IP right. that they have their own big hits. But I mean, Warner Bros. and even Paramount, they already have substantial names. Oh, yeah. Where I think Netflix and Amazon, they're the ones that are behind now, and they still have to kind of build that up. And I mean, you talk about Disney, too. Disney is, I, I mean, they've got a lot of content. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I think Netflix and, and Amazon and Apple, they're, they're fighting uphill because you have the classics on a lot of the other providers and a lot of the other uh, companies, the, the legacy providers that can build shows around these franchises where Netflix and Amazon and Apple, they kind of have to create new ideas. Yeah. Or yeah. buy new ideas. I know it is. Or buy old ideas and make them new like uh, Amazon's doing with the Lord of the Rings spinoff. But, I mean, that's costly. And, and it's it's kind of funny, I mean, because when you look at the content that they own, I mean, just just go to, like, Paramount or, or go to Warner Brothers and, and just look at the names that they have. They go back years and kind of like what Disney did with um, um, the Marvel comics. I mean, they made billions off of that. Yeah, it's the same thing. You and, and it, like people myself, we like that. Now, Lord of the Dragons. What, what's it called again? <laughs> House of the Dragons. House of the Dragons. Say, I don't. I can't get into those, and I yeah. just don't know why. And I know that's a younger generation thing, but you know, we like the things that you know everybody likes. So. Well, older generation on Paramount likes uh, Yellowstone. That's that's a, oh, that was a great one. That was a great yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's you know a good good show there and good content and. I think the hard part too is it's so funny is you know you, you see how people kind of started bundling the cable yeah. packages and then they started unbundling <laughs> with, with the <laughs> streaming and now the streaming starting to bundle back is I mean uh, Paramount's talking about bringing back in Showtime and having just one service obviously Warner Brothers Discovery's mm-hmm. combining and then also too I mean you look at Disney CEO has talked about maybe just wanting to have one package the holdup is there are some other owners in Hulu but the Disney CEOs talked about kind of just having Hulu, Disney, and uh, ESPN just kind of being one package there. So right. I think they're trying to simplify things. It, it's just kind of funny to see how we went from bundling to unbundling to now we're going back, back to, to bundling. bundling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With advertisements. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, let's talk about real estate because being a value investor as I am, it means you only invest when you're buying 
uh, is what you're buying is on sale. For the past couple of years, we have been talking about growth stocks and real estate being over well overpriced, just not overpriced, but well overpriced. Uh, there's a comparison for that that backs uh, backs that up. Uh, during the two-year time frame of COVID stimulus, household net worth ballooned by 39 trillion to 158 percent relative to the U.S. GDP. And the housing bubble of roughly, roughly 15 years ago saw household net worth increase by 98 percent of GDP during its two hottest years, and the big dot-com boom that eventually crashed on increase of 79% in household net worth compared with the United States GDP. Be careful where you invest or what you buy as those two other historical events ended poorly for many investors. And I think we're gonna see the same thing happen. And you know, it's different asset classes that I think are going to get absolutely demolished and not come back. I mean, you saw, again, we talked about the tech boom and bust. It was right. tech stocks that really, really got absolutely crushed and you didn't come back and many still aren't back to where they're at when when they were back in 2000 and same with housing in 2006 and and i will say the difference i think with housing is that we're not going to have a great recession because i don't see the same type of debt level so we're not going to have that type of fall but it's the overvaluation as well that really kind of accelerated a lot of the decline back then right Right. And, and, and one thing I, I've heard people say, oh, but, you, you know, rents are going up, so people should buy and so forth. Well, I, and, and people may not know this, but I, I don't own a home. I sold my home renting. I don't think I'm going to be buying until probably 2024 if I can get a good, good deal on that. But what I do watch is I watch the rental market, what's going on. And, and I am looking at a range of uh, household rental between 15000 and 25000 Well, I'm going to say about three months ago, there was like six or seven houses that I could have moved into. I looked this morning, 37. Wow. That's really coming out. I think that's gonna change because again, we always talk very important supply demand. Yeah, if there's not much to rent, yeah, the price will be high. But the more people saying, well, I can't sell my house now, so I'll put it on as a rental, you've just increased the supply of rental and therefore the price of the rental side could come down as well. Well, what also concerns me is, even though I talked about my somewhat frustration with the Fed is Powell, the Fed chair, essentially said housing prices need to come down. <laughs> I know, I heard that. That's a little concerning <laughs> if you're looking at buying right now. Yeah, yeah. Or, or And I feel bad if people bought six months ago. And again, we told them here on the show, it's just like things are expensive, be careful. But uh, it, it, they, they know that that is going to come down. And again, we talked about the GDP comparison to that. And if you understand those numbers, like, wow, we've never been in a situation on real estate. And, and, and I was on, uh, what show was on? I think CBS uh, Evening News. And I talked about, uh, you know, how, uh, what was I talking about? Yeah, I just uh, lost my train of thought. Um, um, well, gosh, it just kind of left me. Hey, wow, isn't went. that something? Came yeah. and went. I, I'm looking at what I'm going to say next, and I, I forgot my thoughts. So but, I'll, uh, I'll come back. But <laughs> it's so important that if it, comes, if it comes back to me, I'll mention it again. I was going to say the other thing that's interesting, too, about the whole GDP or the household net worth versus GDP was, I mean, one thing that kind of came on that wasn't around before was cryptocurrency. Right. And I think that, of course, we've talked about that a lot. And that being yep. the bubble that, you know, I don't think that's going to go back to 70,000 people. Oh, it's going to go to 100. I don't see that happening. Yeah. I think a lot of kind of what's happened in the past to, again, like the tech stocks, I think the same thing is going to be with cryptos 10 years from now. It's going to be like, I still don't see the point of them. So it, there's going to have to be a proof of concept at some point that they're actually a value to society. So, I mean, in 10 years, they could you know, have that proof of concept, but 
still they have to have value to justify you know being worth a trillion dollar market right phone number is 833-288-0973 that's 833-288-0973 all lines are open to talk about that unbiased no strings attached formal opinion about what you want to talk about and if you like the content that we talk about here on the the show here you want to hear more about that or see more about it that's in our newsletter uh go to smartinvesting2000.com that's smartinvesting2000.com. You can sign up for the free newsletter. You also things that we'll talk about what we see happening by December 31st of this year for the market. Uh, talk about the population, what's going on, population and employment, uh, investing in general. What about Bitcoin? Uh, we talk about uh, many things on investing here This in this newsletter. It is free, but you got to sign up for it. Go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. And when you do that, you'll see it right in the middle of the newsletter. Click on that, sign up for it. You'll get it. It goes out uh, Friday afternoons, I think, at 5 o'clock is when we send that out. Alrighty, phone numbers again, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Let's go out to Alpine and speak with Jim. Jim, you're on the Smart Rest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, as always, thanks for being there. And uh, couldn't get in last week. You know, I've got enough time at the end of the show for me, so I hope there's enough time now uh, to talk about uh, Altria Group, the hey. 3D dividend investor. You know, I'm uh, watching the market drop, and I'm going, good, the yields uh, are going to be going up. That's that's a good way to look at it, and the, and I'm glad you called about this one, because I've not looked at uh, the, the, we'll call it the cigarette group in a long time, so I'm kind of curious how this is holding up and what the future looks like. And so the company, again, is the Altaria Group, uh, symbol M-O. Used to be Philip Morris, if I recognize that name a little bit better. They're in the tobacco industry, yep. and not much float on it, 0.9%. Uh, institutional ownership is lower than I thought. It's only <coughs> 60%. They do have a high P-E ratio, which this did not used to be the way it was on cigarette companies, but the P-E now is 42.6 versus 16.1. There is no price to book value, tangible value, nothing there, which means the liabilities do exceeds the assets. Uh, the industry does have a price to book value of 3.4. Price of cash flow, 9.2, about the same as the industry at 9.3. I am surprised on this. The peg ratio, which is a indicator of future growth, that what you're paying for it, is only 2 versus 24 for the tobacco industry. Now, we do see year over year, earnings are down 60% for, for uh, Altera Group versus a decline of 7.6 for the industry. Sales did decline by 2% for the company, but uh, we're up 5.5% for the industry. Fred? Yes. Red, I yeah. gotta hang up, I'm sorry. I'll pick it. I'll pick up the rest of your analysis on the, on the podcast. Sure, sure, so much. We'll, we'll let you go. Yeah, so we'll, we'll finish up here. Um, all right, uh, thanks for calling, Jim. Uh, also to the five-year uh, earnings percent uh, growth uh, estimate uh, by the analyst is 4.3 above the industry at 2.3. Wow, they do pay a 9% dividend above the industry at 7%, but this is a strange part. The payout ratio, 367%. Something has to change. Either earnings have to go up or that dividend will have to be cut, which would be a big disappointment for that stock there. Uh, on the balance sheet, we see a current ratio not very good, 0.5 versus 1. Uh, that worries me a little bit because they could be heading into a liquidity crisis. Debt equity, nothing there because remember, there's no equity. Uh, that's a problem. Net profit margin, 8.4 below the industry at 14.6. Return on equity, wow, negative 72% versus a positive 31. I think there's some strange things. 
going on here with the uh, dairy group. Chase? And, and I'll say, too, the other weird thing is they have no debt to equity. They have no equity. But intangibles make up 47.8% of their assets. And debt to equity includes intangible assets. Did so you that, look at the balance sheet? No, but I can see right here that intangibles okay. are 47.8%. So okay. that's just a really weird number. It's like, so they don't really have a lot of what I'd call strong assets. Yeah. So that's something that you would really have to dive down in, into and look at what, how, why do they have so much debt? I, for a tobacco company, I don't know why they would need to have so much in liabilities. It's just really strange to me. Well, as you're looking at your numbers, I'm going to go to the balance sheet and kind of take a okay. look. Uh, current price here for Altria Group, well, it is $41.68. 52 week highs, $57.05. And the low is $40.84. It has held up better than uh, a lot of the other mar- uh, stocks in the market. As year to date, it is down 6.8%, while the S&P is now down over 20 Uh, Going forward for Altria Group, I do see estimated earnings per share for December 2023 of $5.05. Would give us a target sell price of $83.83. So, I mean, it it is an inexpensive stock in terms of valuations. I'm also surprised here in terms of their earnings growth. It looks like they're estimated to still grow earnings about 4 or 5% over the next few years. That is kind of surprising me. I, I don't know where that earnings growth is coming from. And now I'm just thinking about one thing that, you know, their P.E. ratio for the trailing 12 months was so high. I did look up. They are actually actually the owners of that that Jewel company that had a ton of issues with lawsuits and so forth. So I think that's maybe what has impacted their earnings over the last 12 months. Something, again, you got to understand. And the other weird thing is you got to look closer to the companies. They did spin out. I forgot who spun out who, but Philip Morris is still a company. It's just now Philip Morris is international and Altria yeah. is do- domestic domestic yeah and I, I did take a quick look at that balance sheet there and I do, I do see they have about 2.5 billion dollars in cash uh, from about seven years ago six years ago that's down from 3.3 billion so that's not good I want to see the cash declining there uh, what was amazing was their intangible assets uh, goodwill and intangible assets make up about 17 billion dollars now that's been about the same over the last seven years but what is kind of concerning to me is that it could be with the jewel situation. Short-term debt is now $2.6 billion. Uh, that was a billion dollars about seven years ago. And you don't want to be in short-term debt where rates are rising because you'll have to refinance that at a much higher rate, which is going to cost you more in uh, interest expense. And then the equity is now a negative $2.4 billion. It was a negative $1.6 billion in 2021. But that's the first time they've gone negative back, um, again, seven years ago. It's a positive $3 billion. So that dividend is enticing at 9%, but you are not investing in a strong company. This could turn very quickly. Did they settle that Jewel lawsuit yet? You know, I, I don't pending? know. Yeah, so that'd be another thing to look at before mm-hmm. you invest in this company. How's that going? So Yeah, and, and kind of conceptually, I was just thinking, I, I like Philip Morris more than Altria because just – you know, I, I haven't done a deep dive into the tobacco industry, but I, I just don't know where Altria's growth is going to come from. I, I don't think we're increasing our smoking here in the United <laughs> States. So. Yeah. so where's that growth coming from? At least with Philip Morris, uh, I know that there's a lot of countries out there that are still heavy smokers that I, I think that would be at least potentially more growth in terms of the tobacco uh, sales. But I, I just don't see where Altria is going to get its growth from here in the U.S. Exactly. All righty. Well, well, let's uh, open up the phone line here. Uh, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. 
Let's go down to Chula Vista and speak with Michael. Michael, you're in the Smart Vegetable, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Good morning. I'm calling about Applied Materials, symbol A-M-A-T. And do you hold that or looking to buy it? Uh, looking to buy a good company that's on sale. Hopefully we'll see how the numbers look. I, I like where you're going with this, so let's uh, check to see if that is true. Uh, coming again is Applied Materials, symbols A-M-A-T. They're in the semiconductor equipment and materials industry. Uh, not much float, 1.2%, 80% institutional owned. Uh, we do see a P-E ratio of 11.3. That is below the industry at 16.8. Price of sales, 3 versus 4.1. Price to book value nine versus forty one point four, and price of cash flow thirteen point two versus sixteen point three. And these are valuation ratios, so you do want them lower than the industry, which is what you have here with applied materials. We do see a peg ratio very good, point nine versus two point eight. Always want a lower number there as well. Uh, earnings did climb by twenty nine point nine percent, about the same as the industry at thirty two point one, and sales for applied materials up sixteen point three percent. That did beat the industry growth of 13%. The five-year estimated growth rate is a 12.4 for the company versus 16.2%. They do pay a 1.2% dividend, only use 13% of their earnings to pay that out. Uh, we do see on the balance sheet, they got a current ratio of 2.3 versus 2.5. Uh, debt to equity 0.5 versus 0.8, so that's good. I like the balance sheet. Uh, net profit margin 26.4, that is better then the industry at 24.7 and return on equity very high 55.1 percent but the industry at 63. chase yeah, so current price here for applied materials well it's 84 dollars and 29 cents wow 52 week high 167 dollars and six cents i mean that, that stock's been cut in half now essentially 52 week low though 82 dollars and 67 cents year-to-date stocks down about 46 percent so about double what the s p has declined but going forward, I go out to October 2023, I see estimated earnings per share is $7.95. I mean, that gives us a target sell price here of $131.97. So these companies now in the semiconductor industry, I mean, a lot of them have really, really become on sale and, and look quite appealing in terms of the valuations. And Applied Materials is now one of those companies that... I think looks like it's it could be a pretty darn good buy here as I, I just don't see semiconductors going well, anywhere in the next and, 10 years. And, and what, six, 12 months ago, like, oh, chip, chip, chips, you got to have chips, and the whole world's going to change your chips. All of a sudden now, like applied materials, I say 90 days ago, the estimate was 876, now we'll say 794, so it has come down, but we are not going to stop using chips, and I think uh, this is the time to buy these companies on sale. You got to get a good quality company, but uh, yeah, this, this is one that... And again, you might have to look down the road two, three years, but shoot, you buy it, uh, what you say it was at, uh, uh, what'd you say the number was at, that's at trading at 84. I mean, gosh, it goes back to even 120, not anywhere near the 167 was at. I mean, that's a 50% return in two, three years. I'd, I'd be thrilled with that. So I, I, I like this company. I think it should be part of a portfolio to have some type of chip company in your portfolio uh, to ride the future. Already? Thanks for your help. Have a great day. All right, Michael. Thanks for calling. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right, that does open the phone line, 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. You know, it's pretty crazy. I was looking at some of the other chip companies, and remember how pricey AMD got? Yeah. Uh, AMD now is actually technically almost a buy. Its forward PE is about 13. What was their high? It, they're high. Gosh, I mean, year to date, they're down about 55%, I want to say. Uh, They've just, just been absolutely 
hammered. Yeah, and, and, and they were like, oh, and, and we kept telling people, that's eh, a great business, but you don't want to overpay for things. And uh, yeah, year to date, they are down uh, 52.8%. Now, the S&P, do have to point out, is down 216 I think I did mention that the uh, NASDAQ is now down about 31%, but still down 528 Gosh, $67 a share. That that does look like it's a company on sale. Wow. Yeah, and <laughs> NVIDIA is down even more, but NVIDIA still trades at over 27 times future earnings. So, uh, again, I mean, there, there, I think there are some great opportunities here in the chip field, but you still got to be careful. As, oh, NVIDIA has been cut in half. Now right. it's I think NVIDIA got way, way too far ahead of itself. It was almost like a dot-com 2.0 here for NVIDIA. And actually, NVIDIA, they could have troubles, too, because uh, Ethereum, the cryptocurrency, they're talking about going, and I think they did already, switch from, I forget what it's called, work in progress. Or some, yeah, something, yeah, I know. I forget the terminology I use, but it's changing, and it's going to take a lot less energy and a lot less equipment and a lot less chips from NVIDIA. So that could be a problem for them if the Ethereum thing works. Uh, so you never want to overpay for something because it can be cut uh, dramatically. And, uh, uh, you know, and actually we said year to date is down 52%. Well, actually, uh, 52 week high, 164, it's down a lot more than 52%. Oh, and you're talking about AMD. AMD. Yeah. yeah. I, I was talking about NVIDIA now too, which <laughs> NVIDIA has been hit even harder than that. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Phone number is 833-288-0973. That's 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. Tim and Oceanside, hang with us here. We're going to talk to our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Uh, good morning, Harrison. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, guys. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Well, good, good. I, I like the topic today. Not all income is treated the same. That just doesn't sound right. What are you talking about? <laughs> so everyone wants to make money, but depending on how you make money, that's going to impact how you get taxed on it. So I'm going to list out some different income sources, and I'm going to rank them from worst to best, depending on the overall tax that you pay on it. So coming in at the worst, and again, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, working hard is bad or anything, but self-employment income or sole proprietor income is the worst income you have from a tax perspective. Again, it's good to start a business, and it's good to work hard and employ people and all those things. Those are positive, but for whatever reason, the, the government doesn't really uh, appreciate it that much because they give you the highest tax rate on it. So if you have a self-employment income, you're taxed on the federal level, you're taxed on the state level, but then you also have self-employment tax, which is an additional flat 15.3%. So if you're in the third tax bracket, you could be looking at a marginal tax rate of close to 50% just because you have self-employment income. Um, coming in next is wages still taxable on the federal level and state level, um, but you're not hit with the self-employment tax of 15.3%. Your employer covers half of that, so you only have to pay 7.6% tax. But still, federal, state, Social Security and Medicare tax, um, and then if you're in California, you also have disability taxes at another 1.1%. So um, if you're in the third tax bracket, you could be looking at a marginal tax rate of over 40% um, because of those wages. Next is interest. This is interest from savings accounts, or if you have bonds, bonds produce um, coupons, which on a, on a tax level are, are taxed as interest. So taxed on the federal level, taxed on the state level, plus if your AGI is above a certain limit, then um, the interest is taxed, um, has something called a net investment income tax, which is an additional 3.8% tax attached to that. Um, after interest, we have 
pension income, IRA, 401k, any type of qualified account income, um, annuity income, if you get a K-1 distribution, all of that is just taxable on the federal and on the state level. Next, we have rental income, which is taxable on the federal and on the state level. But rental income has the benefit of depreciation. While you own property, you can you can use depreciation, which is a non-cash expense, to offset um, your, your federal and state tax liability. So still taxable in the federal and state, but you get some help with the depreciation. Next, we have capital gain or dividend income, which is taxed on the federal and state level. But on the federal side, they give you a break. Um, depending on your taxable income, your capital gains and dividends are either going to be taxed at a lower rate than other ordinary income would be, or if your AGI or your adjusted gross income is under about $110,000, then your tax rate on capital gains and dividends is actually 0%. A lot of people don't know that. That threshold is is pretty high where you can pay zero taxes on the federal level on capital gains and dividends if your income is under $110,000. Uh, next, we have Social Security. Social Security is tax-free on the state level for most states. There are a few states that do tax it, but um, California does not, and most other ones do not. And then on the federal level, it's taxable, but it's not fully taxable. Um, on the highest level, 85% of what you receive from Social Security is taxable, while a minimum of 15% of what you receive is tax-free. Um, and then last, after Social Security, we have Roth income, clearly the best because it is um, all tax-free, not taxable on any level. So, you know, we have all of these different sources, and the trick is to determine, well, again, we want to make money, but how can we structure these different income sources to make sure that you can get the cash flow that you want while also paying the least amount of taxes on that income? And Harrison, for clarification, I think you said 110000 for a joint couple. It's 0% tax on cap gains and dividends. Is that the number? That's correct. So wow. if, you're taxable, if your taxable income is under about $83,000, $84,000, that's the, the threshold that you get into. It's actually $83,550 um, on the joint side, but that's taxable income. So when you add in your standard deduction of $25,900, plus if you're over 65, you get a little bit more. So you, when you add that up, it comes out to, to close to $110,000. So yes, if your income is under about $110,000, it's tax-free for capital gains and dividends. Now, long-term capital gains and qualified dividends, but you know that's that's most people who are have that type of income. I mean, that's a pretty good uh, bracket to be in, $110,000. That's a good income and it pays zero tax. Especially in retirement. Yeah, in retirement. Yeah, so that, that's a good thing. And Wow, uh, great information. So you always want to try to go for this type of income. To reduce it, and unfortunately, you're right. I mean, the government does tax the most people working the hardest. <laughs> well, and then I think Harrison yeah, too. Yeah. It's so important that you know people understand that if you don't structure it properly, I mean, you can cost yourself so much. And it's oh, I have this huge IRA. I'll just pull from that. And it's like you could be costing yourself so much in taxes because it, it it's this big circle, and they're impacting different things. And and if you're not looking at it closely, I mean, gosh, you're just paying unnecessary tax. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mention the tax brackets and how those work. So, for example, you know, you're right, Chase. If you pull from an IRA when you should have pulled from a, an after-tax account, that could cause the IRA distributions to be taxable. But now that's also going to cause more of your Social Security to become taxable. And then that's going to cause your capital gains to go from the 0% bracket up to the 15% bracket. So that one action of an IRA distribution led to a – you know, 50% tax rate because of all the things that it, that it impacted.
Yeah. So, well, Harrison, this is why people need to go to you because again, you look at many different factors as a, uh, uh, a C- CFP. I almost said CPA as a CFP <laughs> on, uh, on a salary. You don't sell any products. Uh, they can sit down with you for a free consultation and talk about how to improve their financial plan. Thanks for calling in. We'll see you on Monday. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you Monday. All right, Harrison. Bye-bye. Again, if you want to contact Harrison Johnson, you can do that by two ways. Well, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. You can send him an email directly to him. Just go to the contact page there. You'll see on the right-hand side. Um, or you can call the office directly. Talk to him, 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And again, he's on a salary. He does not charge any commissions or sell any products. It is true financial planning for a fee. All righty. Phone numbers here, 833 888-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. As promised, let's go up to Oceanside and speak with Tim. Tim, you're on the Smart Invest Show, Brent Chase. How can we help you? Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. So when you started speaking of the old Philip Morris, it, it made me reflect on something that I've seen coming, and I don't know exactly when, but... Let me let me ask you guys what you think about this, because I've had a private security company since 2000, and we do properties from San Francisco to San Diego. It's, it's not a small company, but I do a lot of work in um, cannabis facilities that grow and manufacture and do things like that. And what I've learned over the years of, of working with these guys is that they're all scared to death. When cannabis becomes federally legal, there's two businesses that are going to control it. It's going to be tobacco industry and pharmaceutical industry. Um, The federal government right now, tobacco industry can't get into it. It's not federally legal. So once the handful of states that are still not legal in those states become legal and all 50 states are legal, then it's going to become federally legal. So when it becomes federally legal, the, the talk, from everybody that I know in the industry is that they're going to, the government would rather work with large tobacco companies and pharmaceutical companies than thousands of small independent guys that they have to chase all over the country. So the, the, the thought process in the industry is when those other states come on board, if they do, um, those would be a great investment to get into is big farm and, and tobacco industry. What do you think? Um, you, you know, and, and I, I don't know if it's going to be a big change because I don't know how many states right now actually is legal for cannabis now. I think there's quite a few. But as you're talking, I'm kind of listening, saying, because what could happen is that you're right. When it becomes across the, the country for all states under the federal uh, control, we'll, we'll call it, that you're right, pharmaceutical companies and perhaps tobacco companies will step in because I, I looked at Tilray uh, just to kind of see where they stand. I mean, they were high at thirteen ninety five, now $2.72. You may see those companies turn around dramatically because then like, yes, um, Merck, let, let, let's, let's get into the cannabis industry. How are we gonna do it? Let's buy Tilray. We'll buy it for $20 a share. So there, there could be a turnaround that because at first I can say, yeah, I probably won't because I think the supply exceeds the demand. But if you do bring in the big pharma, the big tobacco companies, 
that could change it dramatically. So that could be a game changer. Right now, it's 38 states is as of July okay. 2022. So there's just 12 that aren't. I don't have the list that that aren't doesn't have it as legal. And and one thing too that that you know I haven't looked at the cannabis industry in quite a while that is somewhat concerning. I think for big pharma and perhaps tobaccos is it's been a, a great cash flow type business for for those two businesses. A couple of years ago, I remember looking at cannabis and the the profitability on it just wasn't there yet because, as you kind of mentioned, there's so many like providers out mm-hmm. there that competition kept prices too low to make it really sustainable and profitable. And as I said, this is a few years ago. I haven't looked at cannabis lately. I'm not sure if that's turned around where it is immensely profitable or their cash flow is doing great. But gosh, I remember there was companies like uh, gosh, it was like MedMen or something was yeah. one of them. They were having tremendous problems. I remember a lot of the other <laughs> providers as well, their, their financials were just awful. So I don't yeah. know if Big Pharma and tobacco would step into it until it looks like a, a reasonable investment well and many times they wouldn't step in because they're making money because we, we wouldn't buy it now i see they have no earnings up but their sales were up uh what it go uh, their, their sales for tiller i'm just picking on one company uh year over year we're up 11 percent so they're, they're doing okay but we couldn't buy it because we want to buy companies with earnings but you're a tobacco company we'll pick on them because they're we're saying how they can pull out of this well look at all the business that they'll pick up many times a company will buy another company not for the earnings but for all those contacts that they can say, we can take it from a, a million contacts because of our marketing, we can bring it to 10 million because of all the, the marketing that we have. So I could see, and again, I'm, this would be a big speculation. You buy a Tilray now, uh, what's the stock price? $2.72. Perhaps in two years, the federal government comes on and says, yes, it's approved across the country. Philip Morris comes in, like that stock could easily go up tenfold because they could do a lot with it that Tilray can't do so it's a very speculative thing but i could see it changing i would not do it because we want to have our safety and security because it may not happen but it could be a big win uh on a speculative side or when it's federally illegal i just don't i i mean one thing that i've kind of noticed is the barriers to entry here aren't that difficult yeah uh, from what i've seen with cannabis i mean i I haven't seen, oh, well, you know, I, I, I can't produce my own cannabis. I know people, oh, I grow my own cannabis. Oh, yeah, there. that's true. Oh, okay, all right. I don't know many people that grow their own tobacco. Right. I, I'm just thinking when you bring in the big companies, the Mercs, the drug companies, the tobacco companies, they could ch- make it a big game changer um, with their marketing and their expertise and everything else. That it, it could have these companies turn around because I didn't think about that until, Tim, you brought that up about them coming to the, the market because I said, ah, they'll never do well. But you bring those guys in, I think it's a game changer, but it's still a speculation. I would not do it myself because I don't like to speculate, but it could be a big win. All right, Tim? Yeah, and I I agree with the thought process real quick if I can. I know sure. you're busy, but I, I agree with the thought process that right now there's not much profitability as a cannabis company because there's still, one, people can grow their own. It's not as easy as you think. It's pretty hard to, to grow quality uh, uh, cannabis. Mm-hmm. But um, even in California, every adult 18 years old can grow six plants for themselves in their house. Um, that's the law. But the, uh, the thing that I think will happen is it'll take the illegal element out of it that's still out there. I mean, there's still guys growing their own illegally and acting as reputable companies and selling to dispensaries. So I think the federal government is leaning towards they would encourage and maybe provide incentives to big farm and, and tobacco industry to get involved because it would take all the riffraff out of it. It would clean it up 100%. Right now, it's a nightmare for, for the federal government to to track it. It's 
it's just really still uh, uh, not as controlled as people might think it is. I mean, even for me as a security guy, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, if I have an armed guard on a cannabis side, he can only be in the parking lot with his weapon. He can't enter that facility because the facility is uh, not federally legal. Oh, wow. And he could lose his firearm. So there's all kinds of things that are middle of the road still without the federal government controlling it. So I, I think it's coming sooner than later, and I just wanted to get what you guys thought about that. Yeah, I've not heard much uh, about uh, the federal government making it legal. I think they have their hands full with inflation, interest rates, the border, <laughs> I mean, many things. But who knows? I can slip on through. You don't see it like, oh, they, they made it legal. Yeah, but maybe it would help the Fed board if they went to a cannabis facility. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, thanks for calling. You have a good thanks. one. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. That does open the phone line, 833 Two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. And Chase, I want to kind of help out people here because uh, we had our client event. Uh, we, we've been guiding clients that come December thirty first of two thousand twenty two. Uh, we think at this point they'll be pleased with the way their portfolio looks. Uh, now, much of that is based on what is in the portfolio. If you have a crappy portfolio, you're not going to be happy by the end of the year. But there are other factors that I see uh, as positive that uh, I, I want to kind of share with you here. I mean, now currently funds relative exposure to the stock market is lower than 90% of historical readings. Now, what does that mean? It means we should see more money come into the market before year end. Also too, with a new tax law on stock buybacks, Chase and I talked about this before the show, uh, we believe many corporations will dramatically increase their stock buybacks before December 31st, rather than paying taxes on those buybacks in 2023. Yeah, and then lastly, have continued to see improvement in commodities such as wheat, corn, and soybeans, with well, the prices being down in some areas more than 30%. I've also heard talk that meat supplies appear to be improving as well. This could help produce lower inflation numbers, and that could lead to the Fed slowing down their interest rate hikes, kind of as we talked about at the beginning of the show. If that does occur, that's a big catalyst for the market. Oh, okay, this, this yeah. isn't that bad. <laughs> and it goes up. And the other thing, too, I should also mention was that this was the worst first half in over 50 years. It would not be surprising to see a bounce in the last quarter on the right equities. Is There's just so much negativity out there. And it's so funny, the way the stock market works, it's always trying to look ahead. You could be in a very difficult time period economically, and the stock market could do very well. Yeah, <laughs> Because it's okay. like, oh, okay, but it looks like we're getting around that corner. The Fed's slowing down. Things look like it's maybe improving. Yeah, we're going to have a recession, but I know we're going to have a recession. Right. The Fed could rally, or not the Fed, the market could rally on news like that because a lot of the bad news is already baked into the market. And, and the mistake that uh, people talk about, or they, they do, is that they let their emotions drive their decisions. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't want to invest. I don't want, I don't want to be in the market because I, I don't feel good. As you just point out, it can change very quickly. We don't know what could happen going forward. I mean, we, we, we could have uh, the Russia say, be a surprise, what could happen? Like, we're going to back off. We're going to pull out. Oh, wow, that could change the dynamics of what's going on. Uh, great example, a recent example, COVID in 2020. Yeah. The market bounced like crazy even when we were still locked down. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Very good point. It's, it, you can't control, essentially, your investment decisions based off the emotions because nobody knows what's going to happen in the stock market come Monday morning. I, right. I have no people are like, oh, what do you think is going to happen on the market Monday? I don't know. But what I can tell you is the businesses that we hold now, I mean, we were talking before the show, I mean, the dividend yield on our portfolio now is likely exceeds probably three, three and a quarter percent. 
if you average all our dividends in the portfolio, it may, might even be higher. I mean, that is phenomenal. You look at the valuations on our portfolio. Now we have companies trading at eight times earnings. I, I mean, that is just ludicrous. We have some trading at six and seven. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and that's what you have to look at and make sure that the quality earnings, not just like, oh, you, you know, it's going to keep They sold dropping. a building. And, right, sold a building or whatever. But I mean, it's so important now because market timing, uh, please write this down. It does not work. Don't feel better because, oh, I went to cash. I feel so much better. And maybe you saved a little bit now. Maybe maybe you would have been, maybe you're down 5% versus being down 15%. Wow, I'm so glad I pulled out. You will miss the upside because you will not see it. You will still feel negative. As you talked about, the, the economy may not turn around, but yet the market did. And they are sitting, waiting, waiting for things to happen. Market timing, 100% does not work. You'll get lucky from time to time. But there's three things that are involved in that. One, when to pull out. That's the easy one. You feel bad, things are going down, Ugh, I pulled out. But then where do you put that money? I've heard some people say, well, I'm just going to go into bonds. Well, if you did that, you actually lost more money because rates went up, bonds went down. So you made that bad decision. And then the tough one, the very difficult one, is when to come back in. And that's the one that I have never seen anybody get it right. They've always missed, been too late to the party. Yeah, and it, it's so hard because, it, again, your emotions that told you to sell are the same exact emotions that tell you not to buy. Yeah. And if you're basing your investment decisions off the emotions, it's just not going to work. And I was thinking while you are talking there, I was like, most people should be investing in their lifetime 40, 50, 60 years, mm -hmm. maybe 70 years. But the problem is maybe you time it right once. You're not going to time it right every single time right. for 70 years. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah, you, you'll win sometime in Vegas, and you might win sometimes on investing, getting it right. But again, there's three factors that go into it. When to get out, where you're going to put the money, and then when to come back in. And you're not going to get all three of those right, so you have a very low chance of doing well. Because especially as right now during a high inflationary period, people are like, oh, I don't want cash. Well, as you said, well, then where do you go? Real estate. Oh, real estate, that's struggling. Yeah. Bonds are not doing well. And especially if interest rates keep climbing, bonds are not going to continue to do well. Gold's not doing well. Cryptocurrency isn't doing well. Cash has been the only thing that's been good this year, so right. to speak. <laughs> and then also, too, you are falling behind with inflation because yeah. inflation's, you know, 8% and you're getting, you know, people, oh, I can do the 10 year or the, the one year treasury, get 4%. Oh, that's so great. Well, no, because now you're going to get 4%, still not be inflation. And what if things turn around in three months, in six months? There you are sitting earning your 4% and you missed buying a company at seven times earnings, paying a 4% dividend. You're going to be so much farther ahead two years down the road than sitting on that one or two year treasury. And call me crazy here, but if the one year treasury was at 4% at the beginning of the year when valuations on the stock market were extremely high, mm -hmm. I said, yeah, maybe that makes some sense because it was hard. we were having a hard time finding things to buy at the beginning of this year because things were expensive. But now it's like you're crazy because, as you said, you look two years down the line, I think buying the right equities, you're going to far exceed 4% in terms yeah. of that, and especially, as you said, locking in a good dividend yield. I mean, it, it's just I think the opportunity cost of that 4% yield is just – that's the dangerous part. Right. And and you shouldn't be afraid. And, and again, I, I've been managing money for now over 40 years. I've gone through, as I said, my 17th correction I've gone through. Um, never easy, but I know what will happen down the road. I can't tell you when, can't tell you the date, but I can tell you it will change. And every single one I've gone through, you have that same feeling. And this is when people say, you don't get it. 
This time it's different. It always feels that way, but it never is. You know, I was, I was driving over here thinking um, about what I'm going to talk about next week on Fox 5. And um, I was thinking about going to probably talk about the volatility and so forth. And I was like, you know, when you're in a bear market, you look back over history, 100% of the time, it has made sense to buy stocks in a bear market. Yeah. 100% of the time. Right. And yeah, maybe it went a little bit lower. Maybe it took you a year. I mean, the financial crisis you bought during the, the initial bear market, essentially. Yeah, maybe it took you a year. But two years later, three years later, it has always <laughs> made sense to buy during bear markets. Right. And if you need the money in six months or a year, don't do it. But if you are, and again, investing is a lifetime thing. You need money to build your portfolio. Then when you retire, you need money in your portfolio to pay you back. So you're investing many times for maybe 50, 60, maybe 70 years. You shouldn't worry about a short-term correction. That could be six months, 12 months. Uh, I, I went through you know, the 2000 tech boom and bust. I mean, those are hard because it took a little bit longer. It took like two years, but still we're so far ahead uh, of that. And, and again, people just miss the concept of don't try to time it because you will not know when things turn around. And there's like news that is out there. Oh, oh everybody's an expert. Everybody's an expert. Harry Dent, who's been uh, a bear for probably 30 years, maybe 40 years since I've been doing it. Well, obviously, listen to him. You've probably gained on your portfolio over that 40 years. Maybe if you're lucky, maybe it's doubled over 40 years by trying to time the market and trying to be bearish. It just doesn't make uh, any sense to do that. So, I mean, it's just, uh, this is a difficult time. I don't, I don't want everybody to think like, oh, this is easy. It is not easy. Investing is very hard. And that's why we look at the fundamentals and we do, it, it, we do our research prior. We're benefiting now from research we did six, 12, 18 months ago on businesses that we bought that we knew a hard time could come up, but they're going to weather the storm. Doesn't mean they're not going to go down it means they'll recover because they're good quality businesses. Yeah, and I, I do want to be clear as well, the quality is so important because you talk about getting back to where we're at in a year or two years. Uh, a great example is the tech boom and bust. If you bought during that initial 20% decline on the NASDAQ in 2000, yeah, 2001 and 2002 yeah. were really bad years, but if you looked at value investing back in 2000, 2001, 2002, it held up much better, and that's why we stick to value. We missed the upside, but I am 100% confident in what we're buying right now because I, I'm not worried about overpaying for businesses, and that's where you run into issues is if you try and jump into something that was hot and thinking it's going to get back to being hot again. It, it couldn't not ever go back to where it was. I mean, that's just the sad reality is, you know, we talked a lot about the Shopify's, the Peloton's, the Roku's, things like that. It could take decades for them to get back to where they were. Yeah, and, and the thing, you look at successful inv investors, Warren Buffett, never been a market timer, David Dreamin, never market timer. I mean, there's so many good investors out there that they just don't market time because it doesn't work. And I do want to tell people, yes, I'm compassionate. Yes, I know it's hard, but do the right thing. You'll do, do well going forward. All right, well, this is Closing Bell. Thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only. It should not be used as investment advice. If you would like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And be sure to visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. A lot of great information there. Also, tune in for more, more daily educational information on investment tips. Go to our Facebook page, Smart Investing with Brent and Chase Wilsey. Thanks for listening to the show. We'll be back next week right here with the Smart Investing Show. 
I did all that And may I say 